Hi, this is Greg Poling, director of the Asian Maritime Transparency Initiative, and I'm joined by two colleagues today, Zach Cooper, who is a senior fellow for Asian security here at CSIS, and Bonnie Glazer, a senior advisor for Asia and director of our China Power Project. Thanks for joining me. Thanks, Thanks for, for having, having me. Uh, we are going to open 2018 or close out 2017, however you'd like to look at it, uh, with a discussion of the current situation in the South China Sea, uh, a topic that has gotten less and less attention, I think, as 2017 went on. But we, we saw a nice little uptick at the end of 2017, largely with the byline, has the U.S. forgotten about the South China Sea? So I'm going to start by throwing the easy question to Zach. Zach, has the Trump administration forgotten about the South China Sea? Well, I think the Trump administration thinks that they are executing a strategy on the South China Sea, which is largely focused on FONOPS. Uh, and I think their view is that freedom of navigation operations are uh, largely what is required to maintain the status quo in the South China Sea and prevent the Chinese from restricting freedom of navigation. Uh, so I think the Chinese believe, or sorry, the uh, administration believes that it has a strategy for dealing with the Chinese on this issue. But I, I think, as Bonnie has written about and you've talked about as well, uh, FONOPs are not a strategy. They may be a component of a broader strategy, um, but you know, to the extent that the administration has stopped talking actively about. Uh, about the arbitral tribunal decision. They haven't talked in great detail about potential contingencies that might occur at Scarborough Shoal or elsewhere. I, I think that's a, a dangerous sign. And, you know, we heard President Trump say explicitly that he has chosen to work with the Chinese and he's gone soft, in his words, in other areas. And I think one of those other areas is the South China Sea. Uh, Bonnie, FANOPS. We, some, you know, my, myself included, would give the administration credit for regularizing, depoliticizing FONOP over the course of the year. But as Zach said, that's, that's not a strategy. So would you say that the focus on FONOPs has been detrimental to the creation of a larger U.S. strategy in the South China Sea? Well, I, I do agree that the focus on FONOPs has been somewhat unfortunate because they are necessary but insufficient. Uh, FONOPs, of course, as we all know, are conducted all over the world. Um, and in the South China Sea, uh, they were conducted uh, prior to not only the Trump administration but prior to the Obama administration. So there was a hiatus in which they were not conducted um, and then they were resumed. Uh, so they are important, uh, but they are certainly insufficient in deterring China from continuing to uh, perhaps even, in my view, dredge new islands. Um, or to perhaps declare an ADIS or baselines. Perhaps, you know, we'll talk about these things in a little more detail. Uh, but I think that uh, FONOPs need to be conducted in a way that will signal our determination to, as both this, this administration and the last administration have said, uh, fly, sail, and operate anywhere that international law allows. Uh, but they're unlikely to shape Chinese uh, behavior uh, in other areas that I think are potentially destabilizing um, for the countries in the region and for American interests. Zach, the national security strategy uh, got some credit 
for some strong language on the South China Sea. I think what people would consider more traditional language on the South China Sea. Uh, so what? Does, does that indicate that the administration actually does have, have a serious uh, goal of deterring Chinese assertiveness? Well, I think there are two groups in the administration. One group is quite hawkish on China, and this is the group that you know had a major hand in writing the national security strategy. Uh, they say over and over again that China is a competitor. Uh, there are times where they are fairly clear that China might not just be a competitor, but might be an adversary. And so you might expect some fairly tough language out of that element of the administration. Um, and there are, there are a few lines uh, in the national security strategy about the importance of freedom of navigation, et cetera, et cetera, in the South China Sea, uh, and some criticism of Beijing's activities there. But I, you know, at the very same time, we've seen uh, the administration not push very hard on the South China Sea since they've been in office. So I think it, it would be unwise to read into the national security strategy that the administration is going to uh, adopt everything that is actually said in the document itself. Uh, you know, we need to see what the real meat on the bones is of the administration's Indo-Pacific strategy. So we've heard them talk a lot about the free and open Indo-Pacific, but we don't really know exactly what that means yet. Uh, what are the deliverables in that strategy? And until we start seeing some of the deliverables, I don't think we're going to know whether they're going to have a real new approach to the South China Sea beyond conducting uh, a larger number of slightly more aggressive FONOPs. Fair enough. Uh, Bonnie, the, before we start talking um, more specifically about China and what China wants and what China's shown us here, the other uh, country dominating the conversation is obviously North Korea, because it seems like the administration, when it comes to Asia, is focused on one thing above everything else. Uh, how is the North Korea debate, you think, affecting the ability to focus on something like the South China Sea? Or is it? Is it, is it unfair to, to say that the administration is too focused on, on one thing? I think that it is essential for any administration to have a full agenda of issues when talking with China, uh, because China is involved in so many um, issues, problems, challenges around the world. Uh, there is no reason why we cannot talk to the Chinese and gain their cooperation on North Korea while also having conversations about economic and trade problems, uh, issues pertaining to maritime uh, challenges uh, in the South China Sea, East China Sea, or the Indian Ocean. Uh, we also, of course, could be talking about more positive issues like climate change um, and other environmental cooperation. So. I think that it is particularly important to have conversations um, at a very high level uh, about the South China Sea. Now, we don't expect a, our president to get into a lot of details. He's not an expert on international law. Uh, but it is um, important for a president to signal uh, priorities and the things that we care about, because if we don't signal that they are on our agenda, then the Chinese can miscalculate or they can seize an opportunity to advance their agenda. Uh, we have seen times, even in the Obama administration, when President Obama raised uh, the South China Sea 
and we know this now because it's been discussed publicly by the former U.S. ambassador to China, Max Baucus, uh, who has said that President Obama did warn Xi Jinping to, that there would be severe consequences if the Chinese went ahead with dredging at Scarborough Shoal. And that is probably one of the reasons uh, that the Chinese, um, if they were thinking about it, decided to not go forward with that operation. I want to turn back to uh, what more the the administration here in Washington should be doing or could be doing and what we think their interests are in the South China Sea. But first, uh, I want us to talk a bit about China, because obviously what China does or does not want in the South China Sea or what China is or is not doing seems to be a much more open question all of a sudden than it was just a couple of years ago. So with uh, what we know was continued militarization or construction of, of dual-use facilities, if you want, in the Spratleys last year. What do you think is China's goal? Has it changed uh, at all over the last couple of years? Zach, do you want to start? Sure. Well, I, I think, first of all, I would say um, it wouldn't be a surprise for China to have uh, a different goal now or a few years in the future from that which it had, say, five years ago when it was first contemplating its activities in the South China Sea. Um, you know, we see a much more confident China now than we did just five years ago. Um, and so I think it's dangerous to extrapolate what we think China wants today and suggest that that's what China will want tomorrow. Uh, you know, m my guess is that China wants greater control over the South China Sea. I don't think that's a surprise to anyone. Uh, the question is whether China will seek to exclude other parties from activities in the South China Sea. And I, I don't actually think that excluding them from navigation or overflight is what's likely to happen. Um, I don't think that's in China's interest. In fact, it would it would pose a real threat to China's uh, trade in the region, and it would be seen as a, quite a hostile move. I think what's far more likely over the long term is that Beijing will desire to have greater control and to prevent other countries from having control over the South China Sea. And so it will use its seven features in the Spratlys and its features in the Paracels, especially Woody Island, to start to uh, press the other countries out of the region or out of the South China Sea. And, you know, so I wouldn't be shocked at all if we saw China trying to stop fishing from uh, in portions of the South China Sea or start pushing other claimants off of their claims in the region. Uh, and whether China intends to do that today or not, I don't know. But I think we have to expect that uh, as, if China grows stronger, that it's going to likely have much more expansive aims than it has now. I think that's a very good point. Um, China's uh, policies are going to be driven in part by capabilities, in part by how they assess uh, that other countries are seeing them as the country in the region that is uh, dictating to everyone else or organizing the region around itself. Uh, Chinese want, I think, every country in the region to avoid taking steps that would damage Chinese interests, and maybe in the future that will um, progress to a point where China will expect countries to implement some policies in order to help 
um, expand and, and advance Chinese interests. And so I don't rule out the possibility in the future where uh, China might try to convince some countries, claimants, to give back, to give up their claims, and to actually withdraw from their positions. I doubt that the Chinese are going to use force for that purpose, but I don't think that's part of the strategy today. Uh, and we don't know about limiting freedom of navigation in the future. If the Chinese actually establish uh, straight baselines in the Spratleys, then we could have areas that they are essentially closing off to uh, freedom of navigation. And, and one thing that I think is particularly worrisome to point out here is what Xi Jinping said in the speech that he gave, which is the work report um, at the 19th Party Congress in October. And it's very early on in the speech where he talks about the achievements that have been made in his first five-year term. And here he highlights China's steady progress in construction in, of islands in the South China Sea. Steady progress um, in Chinese, as well as in English and other languages, implies to me that China has not yet achieved its goal, that it's continuing down this path, it is uh, making gains, uh, and it is going to continue to work on ways to advance its objectives of, I think, yes, um, uh, perhaps uh, it will be things like uh, establishing baselines and an air defense identification zone. Um, it may be new dredging. I don't think we can even rule that out. But also over the longer run, I think there is an ambition of gaining, as Zach said, greater control over the waters and the airspace of the South China Sea. Can I, I just I think what Bonnie said is exactly right. And I just want to add one thing, uh, which is that, you know, if if you're a claimant in the region, let's say Malaysia, um, and you're faced with the prospect of overwhelming Chinese strength in terms of its military, its Coast Guard, its maritime militia, uh, and you think that, say, the U.S. is less engaged than it has been in the region, and you think the writing's on the wall, that is, that eventually China is going to have control over the South China Sea and that China might seek to kick claimants out of some of its features, it, it dramatically increases your incentive to come to some sort of accommodation with Beijing, whereby Beijing pays some sort of amount of money or provides some sort of assistance. Um, and if, if you think that at the end of the day, if you're Malaysia, that you're not going to be able to hold on to these claims anyways, you might as well get something for them. I think this is one of the real challenges, that if the momentum keeps going as it has been, uh, we'll see other countries in the region uh, do what you know I think the Philippines has done, which is try and think through, well, look, if, if they're going to lose some of these claims anyways, maybe they can get something for it. I think that's a real danger unless we can stop the momentum that we've seen the last few years. I, I think that uh, I agree generally, but to 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 drill down a little bit, there there seems to be a, a two competing narratives within Asia right now, um, even within specific claiming countries like the Philippines. One goes uh, since the arbitral ruling in mid twenty sixteen and the election of Duterte and Trump, tensions have cooled and the Chinese have decided that it is in their interest 
to uh, reach out diplomatically in the hopes of cutting some kind of long-term deal with the Southeast Asians or everybody, you know, a win-win solution. And that will presumably involve some Chinese compromises. Uh, I don't think anybody really knows what the outlines of that are, but it suggests a fundamental shift in Chinese goals and strategy. And the other is nonsense. We've seen this movie before. Uh, things like the code of conduct negotiation are just delaying tactic. And the continued construction, for instance, of military facilities in the Spratleys implies that China hasn't actually changed anything about its fundamental goals. All it is doing is tactically reaching out in the hopes that, as Zach suggested, some Southeast Asians will decide to cut and run, uh, which is true. Because it seems to me they can't both be true. Either the Chinese have decided that this is a real time to reach out to the Southeast Asians, or they haven't. Well, I think that the Chinese will benefit from delaying any kind of an agreement uh, with the region. And that's for two reasons. One is that as the process of negotiation goes on, China can continue to tell the countries in the region that we will make progress as long as third parties, of course, like the United States, don't get involved. Um, and so we just have to work this out ourselves. And they can make progress incrementally. Uh, it could take a long time be before all of the countries in ASEAN finally uh, become impatient. Uh, they will give China time. And so that delaying process serves Chinese interest. Uh, secondly, I think that the Chinese realize that as their capabilities grow, that they have a uh, better opportunity to get the kind of final deal, if you will, uh, that will serve Chinese interests. And they've seen this over the last few years. Uh, as Zach said earlier, you look back five years ago, who in China would have even thought that they would have the capabilities um, in maritime space that they have today? And so why not wait another five years? Maybe the United States will be less important in the region. Countries in the region may have given up on the United States. Maybe even a U.S. alliance or more than one alliance will have weakened. Um, so there's a lot of reasons for the Chinese, I think, to kick the can down the road. Zach, you agree? Yeah, I think that's exactly right. Um, and, you know, this is why the countries in the region are in a really difficult spot. They want China to negotiate a code of conduct. Um, but the act of negotiating that code of conduct limits their opportunities in some ways to push back against this Chinese pressure. I, I think the, you know, the other issue in my mind is that at the moment, I, I think Beijing has a real opportunity uh, given the Duterte government. Uh, and it, it would be unwise for Beijing to push too hard in the South China Sea and lose this opportunity they have with the Philippines. If, if I were in China, I would want to see that play out a little bit and see how much cooperation they can get from the Philippines before putting pressure back on. Um, so I, I think there's this window, at least for uh, another year or two, where we're unlikely to see a real large increase in Chinese pressure, at least on the Philippines. Whether they might put pressure on some of the other claimants like Vietnam is, is a separate question. I think there also is a scenario in which we get a code of conduct, but it doesn't really help solve very much. Um, and there are people in China like uh, Wu Shitsun, who's the head of the uh, South China Sea Institute in, in Hainan, 
who've recently advocated that China should accept at the outset of negotiations with ASEAN that a code of conduct be legally binding. Uh, and that has been contentious, I think, in, in the discussions as to whether it should be legally binding. And uh, uh, perhaps uh, people like Wu Shitsun might think, well, China can say that it's an accept that it's legally binding in exchange for the claimants and other members of ASEAN saying, well, it'll only apply to the Spratleys and not the Paracels. That would probably be a good deal. Uh, but at the end of the day, um, I think there's low confidence in the region, especially because of the experience they had with the declaration on the conduct of parties, um, took so long to negotiate and then didn't really have any major effect on the preservation of peace and stability in the region. Uh, so even if they get a code of conduct, that really might not help um, to really address the issues in the region. And of course, it's not intended to address disputes over sovereignty. So unfortunately, um, that is a possible scenario. And my view is, if a code of conduct cannot truly make a difference in securing peace and stability or significantly advancing it, then we're better off not having one at all. Yeah, I, I think the the debate, as I hear it when I'm in Southeast Asia, is, is largely about what kind of code of conduct Beijing is willing to negotiate, right? Because the, we, we hang up on the word legally binding a lot, but at the end of the day, legally binding is meaningless if we don't know the other details, right? You can have a legally binding but vague document that does nothing. For a COC to actually be effective, we'd have to have geographic specificity. And we'd have to have real details about things like fisheries and joint development and law enforcement cooperation. And a dispute settlement and a mechanism. Dispute settlement mechanism. So not everybody can can interpret it however they feel to, as we've seen with the DOC, to justify whatever action they took retroactively. And I, if if the question is will China sign a COC, I could say sure. In theory, I could imagine plenty of COCs China would sign. Just none of them are the COCs that ASEAN is looking for. Uh, so if that's the case, and if this is a delaying tactic, and I think we're all saying much the same thing, which is Chinese goals remain the same. The question is simply how long um, do you delay to, to extract the maximum concessions from, say, the Philippines in the meantime with the U.S. distracted? What is the next step? I mean, looking at 2018 or even beyond, uh, should we expect straight baselines? Should we expect natives? Zach, I'll put you on the spot first. Well, I, I, I do think um, that at some point in the future, China will, will resume putting pressure on the South China Sea. And, and my guess is that when that happens, you're likely to see straight baselines around the Spratleys be one of the first moves that, um, that announcing an air defense identification zone in the South China Sea is probably going to come as well. Um, I think those two things are probably a little ways off because there's going to be a lot of pushback to either of those actions. And so if I were in Beijing, I would want to push as far forward as possible with the Philippines, try and see if you can get a watered down COC, string things out a little bit um, until you're in a stronger position, as Bonnie said, before you do any of those things. So I'd want to make sure that by the time that uh, China announces a um, you know an air defense identification zone that they're fairly sure that the region isn't going to coalesce against them, uh, and I think the time I, I think it's too early uh, right now. Which isn't to say that 
China might not do it, but if I were in Beijing, I would wait. Um, instead, what I w- would be thinking about are things like continued militarization of the Spratleys, right? Really build out the military capabilities there. Because frankly, uh, no one in the region is going to stop China from doing that. Everyone expects that that's what Beijing is going to do. So I would start using the airfields and the Spratleys much more regularly. Uh, Get people used to that operational tempo so that they don't react to it before you step up the pressure in a way that is really going to, you know, create some opposition in the region. So, uh, you know, if if you're trying to divide, you first, or if you are trying to conquer, you first want to divide. And so I think the the trick here for the Chinese is how do you divide the region uh, to the greatest extent before you put on real pressure? I think that's exactly right. Uh, I expect 2018 to be the year that the Chinese do start operating out of their um, their newly built bases, their military outposts in the in the South China Sea. I think we'll see Navy ships, we'll see aircraft that will rotate through, maybe as part of an exercise. Uh, some of the things that have taken place in the Paracels, I think the Chinese see is a blueprint for what they will do in the Spratleys. Uh, but I agree that the Chinese will probably wait uh, before they do establish uh, baselines and in ages. But when they do, I think it is uh, more likely that they will establish baselines around groupings of islands than around the entire nine-dash line. Um, and the danger there is that it will be similar, I think, to in the Paracels, where they announced baselines in 1996. And by a, a connecting these groupings of islands, the Chinese will declare internal waters, which they said in their authoritative government statement right after the ruling was issued in July of 2016, they reserved the right to do. And in internal waters, um, the Chinese will say that uh, ships cannot enter those waters without prior permission. And so that will be, if and when that takes place, um, an even more direct challenge to freedom of navigation in the Spratleys that we have seen so far. So we get deployments of combat aircraft and an increased tempo of, say, naval operations out of the Spratleys, and they begin to normalize this idea of a Chinese presence. And they start to slowly push Southeast Asians out before they codify any of this in law, because once you declare straight baselines, uh, it, that, that would become, a, I think, a political flashpoint in places like the Philippines. And why provoke that, you know, if you can just do it de facto without, without angering anybody. Uh, so if there are red lines to be drawn, if there are red lines that should be drawn, I mean, how much, what, where along the spectrum would it be in the U.S. interest, as you see it, to say, okay, here, but no farther? Well, I think the, the question is... Um is a tough one in part because there's some things that the Chinese can do that are almost impossible for the United States to stop. So uh, if China announces an air defense identification zone, the U.S. can't physically stop them from announcing it. Now, we could stop them from enforcing it, but you know that that is quite an escalation that would be required. Same thing on straight baselines. You can draw a red line and say you can't draw straight baselines, but if they do, what What's the response? You, you know, a FANUP uh, may violate their claim, but it wouldn't actually reverse the claim. And so I don't think either of those is a good target uh, for a U.S. red line. Uh, same way that I don't think preventing uh, ships and aircraft from operating from the Spratleys is a good target for a red line. I, I think the most obvious uh, red line would be to warn China 
that if it attempts to seize a feature from another claimant, particularly a claimant with which the United States is allied, uh, that the United States would take a very hard line over that issue. And this is essentially what the Obama administration uh, came to towards the end of its term. And I think it was effective in this argument. Um, but that's a, that's a very limited set of, set of cases. And there's a lot the Chinese could do without crossing that red line. So I think the question that you're left with is, uh, what do you do in these other cases, right? The actions that you don't want the Chinese to take because they're problematic, but which you also realize you can't stop. I think the danger is that the Trump administration might bluff, right? That they might think that the Chinese won't call their, uh, call their bet here. Uh, my personal view is that the Chinese are going to keep pushing until they are quite confident that the US isn't, uh, is going to push back. And so I think the Chinese are going to call every bluff uh, and so it's unwise to, uh, to draw a red line that the administration isn't willing to uphold. But what the administration could do is threaten some real uh, offsetting actions to something like the announcement of straight baselines. So the administration could take legal action, right? It could step up FONOPS. Uh, it could work very intensively in the region to create a balancing coalition if China does things that uh, coalesce the region against it. So I, I think the, those are sort of the options. But unfortunately, none of these are the clean, easy option that policymakers usually like to have. I think we have to be careful in setting red lines uh, because the Chinese could then think that they could do anything up to that point. And as Zach said, there are so many things that they could do that are destabilizing. Uh, so the idea of offsetting actions or severe consequences for uh, China, if they engage in activities that we see as dangerous, I think that should be the message. Um, and the Chinese should understand that we have tools that we can use. Um, and that would include uh, reactions to uh, uh, further militarization or further dredging. I don't think that we should exclude anything. Because once again, if you set that red line at a certain point, then the Chinese will say, well, we can do anything up to that point. That said, if we are moving in a direction where there's a potential crisis and we think that the Chinese might try and seize uh, an occupied feature, for example, from our ally, the Philippines, that's when you have to make clear, as we have done um, in the case of Japan, uh, it would be a different statement. It wouldn't be necessarily Article 5 under our mutual defense treaty, but it would still be a statement that we would um, uh, come to the aid in some capacity uh, of, our, of our ally. So there are circumstances in which we might want to make those kinds of statements and set a red line. I don't think we should do so now. The other way to look at this then is to uh, start from the U.S. perspective. What are the U.S. interests here? Before we start laying out what is it the Chinese would do that we can't accept, establish what is it that we are trying to protect in the South China Sea. And I, I think under the Obama administration, we had a, a, a short laundry list, but it was pretty consistent. And it included not just the fly, sail, and operate. That became the, the, the tagline for the Pentagon, but also defense of the rules-based order and defense of our allies and stability in Asia. Are we confident that this administration either has a list, knows what its interests are in the South China Sea, and that they are consistent with the prior administrations? My, my view is that uh, I think the bulk of the Asia leadership in the administration, the, 
on South China Sea issues, their view is pretty similar to actually what the Obama team's was. I don't think there's a lot of disagreement about it. Now, you know, you can certainly cite these comments that various leaders have made at certain times from the administration, like about rolling back Chinese operations in the South China Sea and those sorts of things. But I think at the end of the day, um, if you ask most of the policymakers who deal with Asia on a daily basis, they have the same sets of objectives in mind as the Obama administration. The the one where there is perhaps um, a real challenge for the administration is is the rules-based order, which you mentioned. I. I think there's a group in the administration that believes that the rules-based order is not in the U.S. interest. Um, and that group is going to be very difficult to contend with. Um, and so the folks who are thinking about Asia strategy have to argue not only with the Chinese who are trying to el change elements of that order, but also now with people in Washington who don't believe that the order is in U.S. interests anymore. I think that's a much more complex uh, challenge than the administration had under the Obama team when, frankly, you know, they were trying to coalesce the region around a U.S. view of the rules-based order and why this was good and beneficial for everyone. You know, now you have to convince not only the region, but the president. That's a much harder task. So I, I get worried that uh, this administration, really any U.S. administration, uh, by focusing on the Pentagon's perspective on this and, and the toolkit that the Pentagon has available, which is largely FONOPS, capacity building the region, exercises, things meant to ensure that the U.S. can fly, sail, operate, but that are ill-equipped for the bigger diplomatic protection of the rules-based order, that we might very well win our short-term interest as we see it or as we keep articulating it, you know, the ability of a U.S. DDG to operate in the South China Sea, but lose the region. Because the ability of the U.S. Navy to operate in the South China Sea means absolutely nothing to Manila or Hanoi or Jakarta if it's not providing public goods to those countries or supporting the order as they see it. Uh, assuage my fears. I mean, am I, am I overblowing that? Does the administration get that fly, sail, and operate is not in and of itself a strategy? Well, I think many U.S. officials have continued to reference the need for rules-based order and peaceful resolution of disputes. We heard Secretary Mattis talk about that last year at the Shangri-La Dialogue. Um, I think it's, it is part of the narrative. Uh, I think it is, in fact, the only basis on which we can forge a coalition uh, of countries that will step up and, and try to push back against possible Chinese aggression or further assertiveness in the South China Sea. Uh, of course, one example of something we could do, highly unlikely in the near term, uh, but ratification of, uh, of UNCLOSE uh, would be a sign to the region um, that we really do care about a <laughs> rules-based order and we want to be part of the Convention on the Law of the Sea. Uh, but. There are things that the U.S. could do that would, uh, I think, convince the region that this is something that we do uh, really care about. We can't just we can't just say it. Um, and if we are only going to focus on on FANOPS, we may we may lose the support of the region. And so I share your concern. All right. Well, so let's let's try to close out on, if not an optimistic note, at least a, a less 
pessimistic one. What is it that that is actually doable? Let's assume that unclose ratification, no matter how many op-eds we write about it, is not in the cards for the next year or two. What can the administration do now to, I guess, reverse the drift as the region sees it in U.S. South Tennessee policy? Well, I think there are a few things. The first is, um, you know, I, I think you can make an argument that the administration has, uh, over the last year, chosen to talk a lot about North Korea and sought Chinese cooperation on North Korea at the expense of other issues. And so a first uh, move that I'd like to see is a willingness to put other issues back on the agenda, whether that's South China Sea or Taiwan, uh, or really coming to terms with some of the intellectual property rights challenges with the Chinese. I think that would be a, an important first step. Um, another one, you know, I, I think we're all probably fairly pessimistic about the likelihood of getting real movement on trade agreements. Uh, you know, the administration wants bilateral trade agreements. Uh, I don't think that's particularly likely, but I, I do think it's important for the administration to put forward some sort of positive economic agenda, whatever that might look like. Um, you know, the administration's instincts are to push back against the Belt and Road Initiative. But they can't just push back by criticizing the Chinese. They have to put forward something that uh, brings the region together. And so I, I'd hope that they can come up with uh, some sort of strategy as part of the Indo-Pacific approach that is positive and forward-looking. Um, and then most broadly, I, I think you know we, we can't forget that when you're asking big questions about who countries are going to align with, um, in the long term, countries want to align with states that share their interests and their values. And, you know, there are lots of questions being asked about what's happening in Washington these days. But at the end of the day, my view would be that there aren't that many countries in the region that share China's interests or that share its values. And so there is a core fundamental strength uh, that the U.S. can get back to uh, when it talks about those issues and when it frames its engagement in the region through that through that lens. Um, so I, I think the administration does have some cards to play, but what we really need to see the next year is them putting the meat on the bones of what the free and open Indo-Pacific looks like and what they're going to do to put that into effect. If I could just add um, on the Indo-Pacific, you know, talking about the free and open Indo-Pacific raises as much uh, anxiety as anything else in the region right now, I think largely because it sounds more like a containment policy than say the rebalance or the pivot did, and that it's not clear it includes any of Southeast Asia. I mean, it, it, it is largely being conflated with the Quad, at least when you talk to Southeast Asia in the moment. And so the idea of a uh, alliance of maritime democracies, well, not even all maritime democracies, because it wouldn't include Indonesia necessarily, but the idea of, of Japan, Australia, India, and the US uh, teaming up to show the Chinese what for is not exactly appealing uh, in the rest of Asia. I don't think that the Quad and the Indo, free and open Indo-Pacific strategy are the same thing, although I recognize that there are fears in the region that that could be the case. But there are countries that um, want to be part of the notion of a free and open Indo-Pacific that are not part of the Quad. Uh, so it's a question of how it's defined and how it's pursued. Uh, and because it was rolled out 
at almost the same time that the first meeting took place at a fairly you know low middle level of the quad, um, it's not unreasonable that people would perhaps see that they're one and the same thing. So it does fall on the administration to articulate more clearly um, what a free and open Indo-Pacific strategy is. I agree with Zach, there has to be an economic component. Um, we should not just lead with uh, uh, military, and that was one of the problems with the Asia-Pacific uh, pivot early on, was that when it was rolled out by uh, the president uh, in Australia, it was leading with, uh, with our, our military um, uh, presence in, in the region. Uh, and in order to win over the confidence of the region, we have to have an economic strategy. And I'm quite pessimistic about that at the moment, uh, but perhaps um, uh, we can think of other ways to emphasize um, uh, our need to work together with the region economically. My biggest hope is that TPP-11 um, is realized and that the United States then sees that it's in its interest to join because being left out is so clearly damaging uh, to American interests. But that that is a uh, perhaps a longer term strategy. Uh, so in, in the meantime, uh, we should be having conversations with uh, ASEAN regularly. I hope we will have uh, visits by uh, ASEAN leaders uh, that we will pay attention to what uh, we can do with ASEAN at various levels. Uh, we should try to coordinate and, and discuss uh, uh, international law issues in the region. Uh, we should talk about uh, when there are new developments like the appearance of China's new super dredger, what does that mean? Um, just having our State Department spokesmen come out and express concerns about things regularly is a signal to the region uh, that we're paying attention, that we care about these things. Um, and of course, doing as much as we can in the area of building uh, maritime capacity uh, for other countries. When we put resources to these objectives, I think that is seen in the region as a, as a positive sign. So continuing on some of these paths, which were done uh, to some extent uh, more or less in the Obama administration, I think would be a good, good sign. Okay, uh, with that, Let's officially close out 2017, start 2018. Uh, Zach, Bonnie, thanks for joining me. Thanks. Thank you.